Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. What does one of the most famous British movies of all time have to do with life after the pandemic? Well, says author Fried Zakaria, it's all a question of what is fated. In it, there is this moment when Lawrence, this British diplomat, intelligence officer, adventurer, is trying to rouse the Arab tribes to revolt against the Ottoman Empire. Lawrence of Arabia, as he came to be known, is traveling with Arab colleagues when one named Ghassim is lost. And he, Lawrence immediately says, I got to go back and get him. And the other Arabs say, no, 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 he's lost, it's over, his time has come. And then the chief of the Arabs says to Lawrence, it is written, meaning it is written in the book of fate. But Lawrence is undeterred. He goes back through the desert to find Gossam. And he does. He brings him back on his camel. And as the chief hands him some water, but before he drinks it, Lawrence whispers, Nothing is written. Zakaria is the host of Freed Zakaria GPS on CNN, and he's a columnist for The Washington Post. And he says that as he thought about life after the pandemic, that part of Lawrence of Arabia came to mind. I spent so much time thinking about what this post-pandemic world was going to look like and all the big inevitable structural trends that are moving as a result of it, accelerating as a result of it. The rise of the digital economy, the greater inequality being forced upon us as the poor get left behind, the rise of greater and greater tensions between the United States and, and China. And I came to realize that while all these trends are real, and they are pushing the world in a particular direction, nothing is written. Moments like this, he says, when everything feels like it's in flux, they've resulted in both good and bad, conflict and peace, inward-looking and outward-looking. He's the author, most recently, of 10 Lessons for a Post-Pandemic World, and he says the pandemic has brought us more closed borders, less mixing, and there's a danger. That is the road will continue down. What the pandemic shows us is the only way to get out of this is through greater global cooperation. You need more global cooperation to make sure that the next pandemic is one that is arrested earlier. Uh, You need more information sharing. You need scientific and medical best practices to spread from one country to another. And most importantly, you need more trade and travel and tourism to get growth started again, to get people out of the poverty into which they have been led. And that choice, Kara, we faced in the 1920s. After World War I, very similar moment. Globalization started breaking down. Countries started looking inward. And Woodrow Wilson and a few enlightened leaders in Europe said, let's try to use this moment to forge a greater bond of global cooperation, create the League of Nations, make America a central part of the new system. And it didn't happen, right? The the, the U.S. Senate rejected Woodrow Wilson's plans. The League of Nations collapsed. And the world went in a completely different direction towards protectionism, fascism, war. But it could have gone either direction in the 20s. And I think we're in a similar moment now. We can either end up much more linked as a result of this, or we can become much more narrowly focused and selfish and self-absorbed. 
What's incredible is how uh, linked we already are. I mean, I, I recently read, this is very sort of small scale stuff, but I recently read about how restaurants in Japan are really struggling because uh, many people who come to them are not Japanese generally. They're tourists. So you've got all these restaurants in different places that just like they're they're on the verge of collapse because they need the other people, right? I mean, they, they were kind of built around a world that makes certain assumptions and they don't live in that world anymore. It's a perfect example. And by the way, what you describe about restaurants in Japan is through the most authentic bistros in Paris that we think of as, you know, the great Parisian mm-hmm. bistros exist only because of American tourism. Yeah, yeah. If, if not for the American tourists going for that authentic experience, they wouldn't exist. The largest market for McDonald's in Europe is France. So if you're asking where do the French eat, they eat at McDonald's. It's the American tourists who eat at the Parisian Mm. bistros. Um, And it's not just that. It's that probably those restaurants in Japan are sourcing many of their ingredients from all over the world. Just as restaurants in New York rely on tourists, they source a lot of their food supplies from Mexico or Argentina. That's the world we live in. And we live in it in terms of trade, in terms of travel, in terms of tourism. So the unwind will be very painful if if there is one. It makes much more sense for us to actually say, no, we need more cooperation. So the WHO, World Health Organization, everyone says, oh, it's failed. Well, they did some things very well, by the way. They did some things poorly. But they did them poorly because they didn't have enough access to China. They didn't have the ability to demand information from China. So surely the answer is what you need is a better funded WHO with more authority, not uh, say to ourselves, oh, we don't need any kind of coordination. We don't need any global information. China. We'll just all do it on our own. One of the interesting things that you write about that struck me is that plagues, this is not the first time that a, that a plague, that an infectious disease has had like uh, implications for how the future unfolds. And you write about the bubonic plague of the 1330s, which did not just have health consequences, though it did. I mean, it killed maybe a third of Europeans. Um, It had these major economic and intellectual consequences, too. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. I, and I think it's it's a very useful reminder that we're just at the beginning of this new post-pandemic age. We are going to see the consequences of this pandemic for a long time. Because if you think about it, Kara, this is much bigger than 9-11 or the global financial crisis. I was talking to a mid-sized Indian businessman after the global financial crisis, and I talked to him again a couple of months ago. And he said, comparing the two, he said to me, we started actually with 9-11, and he said 9-11 had no effect on us. You know, I mean, we it was an American thing in some Middle Eastern countries. And yeah, you know, we watched the war on terror, but it was not really very related to us. Global financial crisis, he said, I never had any credit default swaps. Nobody I knew in India did. Our economy slowed down a bit because you guys slowed down, but that was it. He said this pandemic, every human being in the planet's life has been changed in some way by this pandemic, either by the pandemic, by the shutdowns, by the paralysis. Just the widespread nature of the impact of this pandemic is almost unique. So if you start with that premise and then you go back, as you say, to the to something like the bubonic plague, it begins with the health consequences, which are devastating. As you say, about a third, by some measures, more of Europe dies. 
then you begin to have an economic consequence to that. With so many people dead, it turns out that people become more valuable mm-hmm. because there are many fewer of them. And so the system of servitude that existed in all of Europe called serfdom essentially has to end because it turns out the workers, the peasants, the farmers have more bargaining power than the landlords, the feudal lords had. And so one of the strange consequences of the bubonic plague is that it results in the acceleration of forces that end serfdom and create a slightly more equal situation between the peasants and the lords. But it then has another effect, intellectual, which is fascinating, which is it is the first major crack in the armor of the Catholic Church and Catholic ideology, because a lot of people say, look, if there is a God and he is benign and beneficent, why would he do this? Why would he kill men, women, children in these horrible ways? Bubonic Plague was a very bad way to die, by the way. And so it begins the questioning that then leads to the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, the Scientific Revolution. So that's just one example of how, you know, these the effects could be much larger than we even begin to understand right now. Hmm. Um, I just want to go back for a minute to that conversation you had with that uh, businessman in India. If you, do you think if you were asking him or, you know, a consortium of people um, looking maybe from India, like not, not in the U.S., at how they think this is going to change their world, What do they think? Well, I think it's one of the saddest parts about this pandemic, which is that for countries that are poorer, for a developing country like India, it mostly looks really bad because you start with these countries having a much bigger healthcare impact because they don't have as developed medical and healthcare systems. Then you have the reality that the shutdowns were much more brutal in their effects in countries like India, South Africa, even Brazil, because many, many people in these countries are day laborers. In other words, they make money that day, which, you know, and they spend it that day on food. That 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 is the only way they feed their families. So if you don't work one day, you don't feed your family one day. And so if you have a three-week lockdown, as you did in India, what you saw was a massive spike in the death of children because of malnutrition. In fact, unfortunately, the number of children who died as a result of the lockdown far exceeded the number of people who died because of COVID. So in many cases, I think in poor countries, it probably didn't make sense to have a lockdown. But then you have the third effect, if you will, the the, the follow-on effect, which is these countries are poor. They can't spend a lot of money to revive their economies. They can't borrow at will to revive their economies. So the principal effect, I think, unfortunately, for those countries has been a reversal of decades of progress, a return to levels of poverty they thought they had vanquished a decade ago, and a widening inequality. You know, we'd gotten used to the idea that globally inequality was 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 being reduced. China was growing, India was growing. We were hearing all the stories of this new middle class in in Asia. Well, some of it will continue. The the rich countries of Asia will continue to do very well. Singapore, South Korea, Japan, uh, and China. But the poor countries, they've slipped. So this has widened the gap, just as it has in America, right? right? Between the people, honestly, people like us whose lives are not that affected by this pandemic. We have to learn how to deal with the awkwardness of Zoom and all that. But think about everybody working in a restaurant, a hotel, in, in retail, in shops, in cruise ships, in theme parks. Their lives have just been devastated. So unfortunately, one of the big 
challenges and one of the big consequences of COVID, the widening of inequality everywhere, mm-hmm. among rich countries to poor countries and among the rich versus the poor within America. One of the striking things to me I was just remarking on to somebody was that is that we've seen the stock market do really so well after an initial shock because of COVID. There, uh, it has just been on a tear, really. And it's hard to reconcile that with millions of Americans falling into poverty. Um, and and what the person said to me was, it may be, unfortunately, that those people don't matter in the economic system anymore. They're, they're so poor that, that the stock market can just keep going and just leave tons of people behind because they weren't very... They weren't spending enough to be um, like part of the system in a really significant way. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's absolutely right. If you look at the stock market right now, it is increasingly dominated by fewer and fewer companies, by which I mean, if you look, for example, at the stock market rise that has taken place since COVID, and you're right, it's been astonishing. Yeah. It's, it's more than back to normal. But then you, if you analyze it, what you realize is if you take technology and healthcare out of the stock market, the stock market is actually about flat. It's up a few percent, but it's not up 25%, which is what it is. And to give you a sense, Amazon's market share since COVID has gone up $750 billion. Two years ago, there was not a company in the world that was worth $750 billion. Amazon is now a $1.5 trillion company. Jeff Bezos is worth $200 billion. It's hard to wrap your mind around. Yeah, it's just incredible. And you say to yourself, this is all happening while 25 million Americans are finding they do not have enough food to eat, while you have the largest increase in poverty in America since the Great Depression, while you have the most striking decline in employment for the bottom 25% of America. And it's two things. One, it's, as you said, these people don't have as much buying Mm -hmm. power anymore. But it's also that at the top end, smaller and smaller number of companies are dominating more and more of the economy. So it's even the middle level companies. I mean, the people may be doing okay, but they just, we are approaching kind of French revolution levels of inequality. Mm. Let me ask you something related to that, which is about uh, the future of cities. I know this is an interest of yours, and we certainly saw all over the world, this is not just an American phenomenon, um, wealthy people like hightail it out of cities um, when the pandemic hit. We You saw it in New York. It, you know, there's data showing on places like the Upper East Side and the Upper West Side, there are a lot fewer people. They just they went off to country homes or they rented country homes, but people did it in Paris, too. Does that tell us something about uh, the future of the city? Um, actually, not as much as one would think. So what you describe, which is entirely accurate, is actually a very traditional pattern. So you look back over the centuries, whenever there have been problems in cities, people have fled temporarily. Mostly they have actually fled during plagues or floods or things like that. The bubonic plague is a good example. It started in northern Italy and people really hightailed out of places like Florence. So Florence, I think that the estimate is about 40% of Florence was devastated by the plague. And whoever was left who had any means, the city was almost depopulated. And then people start coming back. And they came back to the extent that, you know, within 100 years, Florence was the center 
of the Renaissance, uh, and it was the most vibrant, vital city in in all of Europe by some by some measures. London was devastated in the 17th century by plague and by a fire, and all that happens. And soon you have a London that is rebuilt and is in some ways becomes the capital of Europe and the world. Uh, so the truth is the long-term trend toward urbanization remains very strong. So let's for a moment not just look at American cities, let's look at cities around the world. People are urbanizing at fantastic paces. That is going to continue. Uh, in the United States, you know, we're already highly urbanized, so I don't think we're going to get more urbanized, but I doubt very much we're going to get less. And here's the simple reason. I'm a city slicker. I love cities. I grew up in a big, noisy, dirty city, Mumbai. I live in a big, noisy, dirty city, <laughs> New York. So maybe I'm biased, but it's not my pro-city bias that's acting. I'm looking at the data. People make more money in cities. The easiest way to increase your income is to move to a metro center where you are more likely to get a higher paying job, where you are more likely to make more connections, where it's more likely if you lose a job or if you change jobs, you find another one that is equally high paying or perhaps more high paying. That is the central attraction of urban life. And then beyond that, of course, there is the deep, deep urge that human beings have to be social, to mingle, to congregate, to work together, to compete, to play. And all that is so hardwired into us that I'd be very surprised if this pandemic somehow upends this very deep historical pattern. You tell this story, which I did not know about, but um, yellow fever in the late 1700s killed 10% of the population in Philadelphia, which is enormous. And Thomas Jefferson, who kind of famously liked living out in the country, thought like, good, now American cities are not going to get built up. You know, who needs cities? That doesn't need to be our future. Um, clearly, that's not how it worked out. Yeah, it's a great story because it also allows one to use the word decimate accurately, which most people use inaccurately. So decimate actually means to kill one-tenth mm. of a population, that deci. So the yellow fever decimated Philadelphia. Uh -huh. 10% of Philadelphians, one out of 10 amazing. died. I mean, that's a scale it's hard to even think about now. <laughs> right, exactly. You're talking about almost a million New Yorkers would die. And Jefferson, as you say, you know, said, oh, this is the end. You'll never have big cities in America. We'll have small towns. Philadelphia was at the time the biggest city in America. This is the 1790s. But it's actually Jefferson's view. It, it is a very common view expressed throughout history. And it is a view that saw, sees cities as dens of vice and mm. dirt and, you know, a kind of uh, depravity and loose morals. And it's a picture in which, you know, there is this kind of bucolic rural life, the, the gentleman farmer, the virtuous peasant who is put up against the, you know, the horrible, uh, rapacious city dweller. Whatever may one may think of it, it is at this point really a kind of nostalgic throwback. Maybe, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure I believe the rural wildlife was ever so virtuous. But in any event, today, the thing one would have to say is that the reason people are living in cities is because, as I say, it's enormously economically advantageous. But if you believe that the central challenge we face is living sustainably, city life is much more sustainable than life in the exurbs or the rural areas. It is much more environmentally sustainable. 
people who live in cities have a much lower carbon footprint. This is kind of, again, people tend to mm-hmm. think of cities as somehow more grim and industrial, but the simple act of living closer together makes you much, much more efficient in terms of what your carbon footprint is. So you think about buildings, right? You're putting, you're stacking people up in these in these tall buildings, much more efficient than having every person live in a single family home spewed across large tracts of land and so on. You know, there are huge advantages to city life in that, in that sense. So I often say to myself, you know, if you believe that the greatest virtue today is to live a sustainable way that, that allows the planet to breathe, well, it turns out, you know, come to New York. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm speaking with Fried Zakaria. He's the author, most recently, of 10 Lessons for a Post-Pandemic World. We're going to take a quick break here, and we will come right back to talk about how government may change as a result of the pandemic. You can find this whole conversation, you can find all of our conversations every week on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. From GBH Radio and PRX, this is Innovation Hub. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Pandemics change things, but not always in the way you might imagine. The last enormous pandemic that this country suffered from was the Spanish flu in 1918. The death toll per capita then was about 10 times the death toll from COVID today, at least as the numbers stand now. It was a brutal event. There were masks, just as there are now, but much more rudimentary medical care and the flu tended to hit young adults in the prime of their lives. The mood after that in America seemed like it would be a lot more somber. But, says author Fareed Zakaria, that's not exactly what happened. What comes next in America is the jazz age. (laughs) You know, we go back to city life and everything seemed normal. In fact, Warren Harding, the president who wins the election, then campaigns on a new normalcy. Uh, and then you have the jazz age. And in fact, even though alcohol was illegal, there were apparently a thousand bars in New York City, a thousand speakeasies, as they were called in those days. Zakaria is a host on CNN and a columnist for The Washington Post. He argues that just because we believe our next chapter will unfold in a certain way, that doesn't mean it will. And if you think back to the 1920s, to a population that had seen how risky and scary the world can be, Did they internalize that aversion to risk and retreat? Well, no. They went through the war. They went through this great influenza. And by the way, it didn't end because of a vaccine. It ended because it kind of petered out and nobody was quite sure why. So my point is the risk was still there. And then boom, they're all in gin joints and and speakeasies dancing the night away. Zakaria says we may believe it's inevitable that Zoom will take over our lives, that cities will sit empty, that commutes will be a thing of the past. And he does believe that the pandemic will likely lead to the use of more digital tools, to more hybrid work situations. But as for the most dramatic changes, don't count on it. 
when you use Zoom, when you use any one of these teleconferencing mechanisms, you are spending social capital, you're not building it. Let me give you a good example, just even with my team. So, you know, my team that produces the television show, we are about 10 people. We've been doing Zoom calls or Microsoft team calls, whatever you call it, what you will. And we could tell after a while, all of us, that morale was fraying. So we, we had a couple of open sessions where people talked. And it was very clear that there was a lot of frustration and raw nerves and hurt feelings because you had lost all those mechanisms by which, you know, people knew that you liked them and you were friendly and you had exchanged a little joke here and uh, somebody had asked about another person's parents or their children. You know, all that was gone and all that was left was the work stuff and, you know, somebody would send me an email and I would say, well, this is not good enough, try again, and then they would get very hurt. And I realized that, you know, whereas in the past, all this was happening in the context of a lot of human physical relationship in now we were left with you know a, a much more cold calculating transmission of information but if cities aren't finished much as the bubonic plague did not do in florence or london or paris zakaria argues one domain where the future has to look much different if america wants to remain powerful impactful and functional is government Zakaria's most recent book is 10 Lessons for a Post-Pandemic World. In it, he cites the theorist Francis Fukuyama, who argues America has become a vetoocracy at both the local and national levels. So you get five groups to agree and the sixth group says no. You get six groups to agree and then at the state level, one group says no. And so that process where you have empowered people to say no enough that you can never say yes to anything might explain why we have, I mean, New York has not built a single piece of great infrastructure in 50 years. You know, it's really since the era of Robert Moses, nothing has been built. And that in New York is not so unusual. There are a few scattered examples here and there, but the United States has not been able to do it. So we, we have created a kind of dysfunctional governing system where we have lost the ability to identify great needs and great projects and move toward them. Instead, what we are very good at is the blocking. And you see it in Washington, right? Blockage, paralysis, deadlock, you know, whether you think about immigration reform, whether you think about infrastructure, whether you think about any of these healthcare reform, anything you try to do, everyone knows how to block it. And as a result, nothing gets done. So is there is there something about better governments that are more effective that we should be learning, especially right now, given the response to the pandemic. But but more broadly, as you're saying, this was this isn't just a pandemic problem. This is just a, an American governance problem right now. What can we learn? Who can we take a page from? So at one level, we just have gotten fat and sloppy and lazy about the nature of government. And, you know, we've piled on all kinds of mandates and regulations. It's just it's pretty dysfunctional. One of the things I was struck by in researching the book was the degree to which other governments that actually we would consider kind of big government, Canada or Germany, are much more lean and efficient 
than the United States. The United States has many more regulations, for example, on how to build something, many more regulations on financial institutions, huh. because in many, many cases, our regulations are federal, state, and local. So you almost have three layers of conflicting regulations. So they might have more intrusive regulations, but they're more efficient because there's one simple regulation, one regulator. It's all pretty clear. We have this mishmash of center, state, federal, local. So there's some of that dysfunction. The other part of what has gone on in America is for the last 40 years, the Republican Party, ever since Reagan, has said government is the problem. Government is the evil. You know, the Reagan famously said the nine most frightening words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Now, if you take that attitude, and that attitude has become more weaponized and vengeful over the years. So Newt Gingrich comes in saying he's going to destroy the federal government. Steve Bannon articulated, he said, the goal of the Trump revolution is to deconstruct the administrative state. Now, for 40 years, Republicans have been dominant. And if that's their goal, well, guess what? They've succeeded. The federal government is very dysfunctional. Many of its agencies have been starved of resources. And you add to that the dysfunction that comes from more mandates. So in a weird way, we've given it more tasks and, and less money, and which is a recipe for dysfunction. Uh, and guess what? In the pandemic, it became very clear these places are not functioning well. And there's a final point I would make, which is that it's not so much that we have gotten so bad. It's also that others have gotten very good. You know, if you look at the East Asians, if you look at the Northern Europeans, a lot of what they did was they learned from America. You know, I mean, the East Asian governments will tell you that they looked at the CDC and the FDA and they copied it. They looked at the Securities and Exchange Commission and the Federal Reserve and they copied it. So they took our best practices and refined them and improved them and adapted them. We, on the other hand, have been smug and lazy and believe that everything you know that the United States does is the best. We've stopped learning. We are so infatuated with the kind of idea of American exceptionalism that we've lost the ability to realize that you know there are a lot of people out there who are doing a lot of things better than we are. Should that worry us that that other countries have copied us, but they're doing what we do better than we do it? Like they've got big government, but it's more streamlined than our smaller government. I mean. I I just wonder if we should think, yikes, that that can't go in a good direction in the future. Absolutely, Kara. You know, if I if I look at the countries that did well, the one common trait is that they're all countries that, in some way or the other, felt to themselves at some point, we need to learn. You know, we're not perfect, and we need to learn. So start with the countries in East Asia, like Taiwan and South Korea, that really have handled COVID the mm-hmm. best. They all handled SARS, the previous pandemic that, you know, miraculously kind of petered out again. Nobody quite knows why. But when it hit, Taiwan did very badly with it. Uh, South Korea didn't do so well with MERS, which is another one of these. And they, but they all learned from it. They all said to themselves, OK, what did we do wrong? How do we improve? Who did it well? And they sort of copied best practices. So I think that one of the things I notice is that the countries that did very badly with COVID... Britain, the United States, Brazil, tend to have this somewhat smug, insular, arrogant attitude that says, we're the best, we know everything, we don't need to copy from you know anybody else. And that's very dangerous. When we look around at our healthcare system, at our homicide rates, at our public education system, why are we not asking ourselves the simple question, you know, 
There are 30 other countries that do the healthcare in the advanced world. They all have better mm-hmm. results than we do for less money. Why are we not asking the same with public education? You know, we have 10 to 20 times the homicide rate of any other advanced country in the world. Why don't we ask what are they doing and what can we learn? Does that tell you anything about the balance of power in the world going forward? I hope it doesn't. I tend to be an optimist. I'm an immigrant, so I'm deeply pro-American and down to my bones. But I think we need to step out of this exceptionalist stupor where we say to ourselves, everything is going fine. You know, right now, I worry we are in denial. When I hear Donald Trump say, we're the greatest, we've done, we have the greatest doctors, we've done the best in the world. I cringe because I feel as though the first step here is to accept that we've actually failed, that we really have done badly. I mean, with 4% of the world's population, we have 25% of the world's deaths. We have, roughly speaking, four times higher morbidity rate for COVID than Germany, 10 or 15 times higher than most of East Asia. We did something wrong. We didn't get this right. And if we can't approach it in that direction, we're in trouble. We have been living very riskily. Mm-hmm. We've been living on the edge. You know, we, we've been driving this very fast race car and we forgot to put shock absorbers and we forgot to put airbags and we forgot to put seatbelts on and we forgot to buy insurance. What we need to do is find a way to maintain some of the dynamism, the competition, the innovation. We want all that, but we got to do it in a way that we don't crash the car because, you know, I mean, the danger of one of these next crises is they're big enough that it could be the last one. Freed Zakaria is the author of 10 Lessons for a Post-Pandemic World. He's also the host of Freed Zakaria GPS on CNN and a columnist for The Washington Post. Freed, thanks so much. This is great. It was really my pleasure. Thank you. And on our website, we're going to have more about some of the topics that we touched on during this discussion, including the 1793 yellow fever epidemic that swept through Philadelphia. That's at innovationhub.org. From PRX and GBH, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub.